Uh, my name is Kevin Miller. I'm a, a part of the teaching team here. Uh, you guys might recognize me. I'm really excited you guys are here. Uh, the church is looking a little sparse this morning. So we left about 40 of our guys up in Tahoe on the men's retreat right now. And uh, hey, they're having a great time. Roly and I were up with them yesterday. Uh, they are doing well. They smell a little funny, but they're, they're eating well. If you count bacon as eating well. And uh, I just wanted to say this. Uh, I, you know, I got home last night and kind of was sharing with my wife a little bit. And uh, I was like, wait, how was your weekend? And, and just asking her about how it was taking care of the son. I just wanted to thank all of the wives here that let their, their husbands go on the men's retreat. Uh, thank yeah, yeah. I, I realize what a sacrifice that is, uh, and I can just say from being with those guys that I really appreciate it, they really appreciate it, and I think God was doing some really neat things with that group of guys. So thank you uh, for letting them go, and uh, yeah, should be safe and sound. A little bit more tired, but they'll be back today. So uh, we are continuing our series in Acts, and we've been calling this series Turn the World Upside Down, because we see in the book of Acts that God does just that. He turns the world upside down, forever changes the course of history. As the message of Jesus begins to spread through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the known Roman world and beyond. And we want to see him continue to do that today. So the story of Acts is the story of the church in its infancy. It's the story of the gospel and the power that it has to change lives. As a church, we want to catch the vision that God has for his people to participate in his mission to reach our city and our world. And that's what we've been looking at. We've been looking at uh, the story of the gospel. We've been looking at the early church. We've been looking at the believer's response to persecution. I think it's been a really sweet time. I think our church has grown closer this summer as we've gone into that. And today we're going to be looking at Acts 10. And and I I don't want to... Uh, be too dramatic, but I I think Acts 10 is potentially one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's one of the turning points in all of history. The events that that go down in Acts 10 forever alter the course of history. And honestly, Acts 10 is the reason why Discovery Christian Church is here today worshiping God as one people. So if you need a Bible, uh, we please raise your hand. There are Bibles at these tables. One of the guys can hand you one of those. If you have our app, you can pull up the app. Uh, You can Google Acts 10 if you want. It'll pull right up. We're going to be spending a lot of time in the text of Acts 10, and so it'll be helpful to follow along. So again, this is one of the great turning points in history. And uh, before I go any further, I want to pray for us. God, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to be here together as a church to worship together. Thank you for the Bible for your word, which you gave to us, to guide us and to instruct us and to teach us and to comfort us. God, as we look at Acts 10 today, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes, that we might see and understand the gospel more. We might come to know you more, that we would be emboldened and strengthened, encouraged, maybe convicted. God, would you continue to transform this church Would you continue to to impress upon us your vision to reach Davis and to reach the world? God, we we humble ourselves before you and before your word this morning. We ask that you would meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Acts 10 is a pretty long chapter, so I, I'm not going to read uh, the entire chapter, but I, I want to give kind of the big picture story. So I'm going to read a few sections, and I'll kind of fill in some of the details in between. You guys can follow along through with me in Acts 10. So starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius is a, a Roman, so he is not a Jew, and he receives a vision from God to send for this man, Peter. Now at the same time, Peter uh, is at Simon the Tanner's house, and he is praying. And while he's praying, God gives him a vision. And in this vision, a sheet is rolled down from heaven, and on it are all kinds of animals. Specifically, there were some animals that Peter was not supposed to eat. They were uh, culturally, religiously unclean animals, and God says to eat. So picking up in verse 13, uh, the, this is Peter's vision. There came to him a voice, uh, there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call a common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. In verse 19, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now, guys, this is a pretty profound thing that just happened. Uh, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you, you'll remember that there are uh, many laws regarding what the Jews could eat and not eat, things that were clean or unclean. And what God is saying here is that he has uh, abolished some of those practices and laws. He's saying that the things that Jews once held as unclean, God has now declared clean. So if you've ever had somebody ask, or maybe you yourself have asked, uh, why can Christians eat bacon? Thank goodness, right? We can eat bacon. Why is that allowed when the Jews weren't allowed to? It's because of this. God is saying, don't call it unclean anymore. It was unclean, now it's not. So Peter goes with the men to see Cornelius. And picking up in verse 25, he, he arrives at Caesarea... And it says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for you, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius explains the vision, explains why he sent for Peter. And then Peter says in verse 34, says, He opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. 
You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. All right, long chapter. Uh, thanks for bearing with me. And we're going to just hit a few points. There's a lot that could be said about this chapter. We're going to narrow in on a few things. And first, I want to give you guys a little bit of background context to kind of help set the stage. So you have to realize that from Acts 1 all the way through Acts 9, and really throughout most of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, was a Jewish religion. So a Jewish man, Jesus, got a bunch of Jewish men, the disciples, to teach Jews to worship the Jewish God. Okay, this was a Jewish religion, a sect of Judaism, uh, an off-branch of it, the Christians were called, a sect. But God is not just the God of the Jews. And, and we might think this was kind of out of left field, like, whoa, God, where did that come from? But the reality is that this has been planned for a really, really long time. And we see this as we read some of the Old Testament prophecies and promises regarding what God is going to do when he sends the Messiah, who we know as Jesus. One of my favorites is, is in Isaiah 49, chapter, verse 6. Chapter 49, verse 6. Uh, this was written 700 years before Jesus even shows up on the scene. And God says this. He says, he's talking to the Messiah, which, again, we know as Jesus. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So he's saying, it's too small of a thing just to save the Jews. I'm going to send you to do much, much more than that. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So this is just one of many, but think about this. 700 years before Jesus shows up, God says, it's not just the Jews that I'm going to save. I'm going to send somebody who will reach the Jews and will also reach the ends of the earth, that all nations might hear and be saved. Quick stats for you guys, just to put this in perspective, right? God says it's too small of a thing. Uh, in, in 2015, or beginning of 16, uh, there were about 14.3 million ethnic Jews in the world. Around that same time, the population hit about 7.5 billion people. Okay? So there's a chart here. That, that's how small the Jewish population is in our world today. The two. I want the other 998 also. It's too small a thing just to reach the Jews. And we read in Revelation, 
at the end of times when Jesus returns, that there will be a great multitude of people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue, from every corner of the earth before the throne of God, worshiping as one people. This has been God's plan all along, to bring everybody from everywhere and make one people, one body with one head, which is Jesus. But think about how crazy that is, right? You guys follow the news. We, we hear about the things that happen in the world today, right? The, the wars, the disagreements, the feuds. How does God expect to bring people from every tribe, tongue, language, culture, socioeconomic, political background and make one unique, unified people? That's preposterous. Right? How, how could you think to do that, God? How can you separate or how can you bring together what has been separated by so many different factors? This, that's a, a pretty incredible claim that God wants to do. And I think in Acts 10 we see the beginning of it. And I want, I want to point out two things that God does in Acts 10 to make this happen. The first is God breaks down social barriers. And the second is that he breaks down spiritual barriers. So first, between breaks down social barriers. And we can think about this as horizontal barriers between men and also vertical barrier between God and man. And Vlad mentioned this last week. I think it was a perfect analogy. So we see it here in Acts 10. First, he breaks down social barriers. <clears throat> Back to Acts 10, starting in verse 15. The voice came to Peter, again, a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 19, Peter was pondering the vision. The Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. In verse 28, Peter says to the Cornelius and the people gathered there, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I asked, Why did you send for me? Now we might think, at first glance, that Peter's being a little bit dramatic. He's being kind of a little bit rude, even. He says, it's unlawful for me to be here. Why did you send me? But we have to understand the historical context here. Uh, and we get a hint, a little bit of a hint from the word that he uses in verse 28. When he says to them that it is, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Okay, this, this word unlawful, uh, it's the Greek word athametos. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament. Uh, the, the word is translated as unlawful in ESV. In NIV, sometimes it's translated as detestable. And in the KJV, the King James Version, it's actually translated as abominable. It's only used one other time. It's in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, I, didn't put, I don't think I put it up on the screen, but basically Peter is listing a list of uh, outrageous sins. And he says... That the, the world lives in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. Okay. So this word uh, signifies uh, just detestable, abominable, outrageous, dirty. And it comes from the, the history of the Jews. So in the Old Testament, when God sets apart the Jews, he calls them out of Egypt... He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them laws. 
He gives them laws about how to be clean, how to be separate from the world. So the Jews, they didn't, they didn't eat what the world ate. They didn't worship what the world worshipped. They didn't talk like the world talked. They were unique. They were special. And they worked really hard to keep themselves clean and pure and distinct. I thought of a, a story to kind of illustrate. I, I grew up about an hour north of here, kind of up in the mountains in Placer County. And the town that I grew up in is called Forest Hill. And it has this kind of legendary red dirt. Uh, and the dirt is, is high in iron, and so the iron rusts, and it causes the dirt to be red. And, and this red dirt clings like the plague. Right? It sticks to your clothes, it sticks to your body, and it, it literally, if you play with your hands in the dirt, your hands will come away stained a reddish color because of the dirt. And so growing up in Forest Hill, I never owned a pair of white shoes. I never owned a pair of white shorts, and my white shirts did not last very long. And, and I knew that if I owned a pair of white shoes, I would have two options, right? First, never wear them outside. Second, they're not going to be white. Right? That, those are my options because if I stepped outside in white shoes, my shoes would get dirty and contaminated. And they would no longer be pure. They'd no longer be clean. They'd no longer be white shoes. Also, white shoes are kind of typically old people's shoes. So I didn't, I mean, that, that helped too. But, but the reality is that this is what the Jews were, were realizing. This is what they were facing. They were clean. And they worked hard to keep clean. And for them to go to a Gentile nation, a non-Jew nation, to, to be around food that they weren't allowed to eat, uh, to be with people that they weren't allowed to interact with, even the clothes that Gentiles wore, the Jews were not allowed to wear. So this was, this was practical. So Peter, uh, when he goes over to Cornelius' house, I mean, he's facing political, social suicide, uh, and worse, he's, he's risking making himself unclean before a clean and holy God. Now, thankfully, he, he correctly interprets the vision that God gives him. And he realizes that God is saying that not only is the food clean, but don't call the Gentiles unclean anymore. Don't call the people unclean. So Peter goes. And you have to imagine the crisis that he's having. You have to imagine that years and years and generations and generations of traditions are being shattered in one moment for him. He goes one step further, though. And guys, I, th I think this is profound. And I want us to catch this. In verse 25, Peter entered. Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted, it up, lifted him up and said, stand up. I, too, am a man. Picture this. He walks in the house. Cornelius is on the ground. And Peter gets down and touches him and lifts him up. He says, I'm like you. I, too, am a man. We're equals. This is game-changing. See, God breaks down the barrier and says, don't call that unclean. And Peter steps across and says, I'm like you. God has told me that we're equals, that you're no different than me. Now, this took a while to catch on, but it did catch on. 
And the Christian church soon became a church that was not just for Jews, but was for all people. And you can imagine it caused a lot of problems. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of disagreements. A lot of trying to jockey and figure out how do we do this? We've been separate for so long. But sure enough, it did. And, and years later, uh, the Apostle Paul, he, he's writing letters. And in a couple of his letters, he says some pretty profound things about this distinction. In Galatians 3, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, that is, Gentile, circumcised, or there is neither Jew, sorry, Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there he breaks down the cultural barrier, the ethnic barrier. He breaks down the socioeconomic barrier between slave and free men. He breaks down the gender barrier, saying men and women are equal in God's economy. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And again in Colossians 3 he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So we see that this does catch on. That the church becomes a diverse, multi-ethnic place where people from all backgrounds are welcome. Let's fast forward to today. Think about the barriers that exist in our world today. Think about the, the socioeconomic barriers, the political barriers, still maybe even the ethnic barriers that exist in our world today. I believe that God has told us that we cannot call any person unclean. And for God to turn the world upside down, for him to turn Davis upside down, we as Christians have to embrace this. We have to be the ones crossing the social barriers that God has broken down. We have to be the ones saying, I'm like you. We're equals. One commentary says that this is the starting point for any who would take the gospel to those who have never heard. Is to say, I too am a man. My question for us this morning who do we call unclean? What barriers still exist in our relationships? Who have we chosen consciously or unconsciously to avoid? If you're a Christian, you might think about it this way. Who in your life have you unconsciously decided could never become a Christian? Who have you said is outside of the reach of God's love? When you do that, you've already declared them unclean. No one is outside the bounds of his love. It might be our neighbor who's Buddhist or Muslim. Maybe our atheist coworker. Maybe our, our roommate who parties, drinks, and does drugs. It might be somebody in this church that's a little bit awkward that you try to avoid on Sunday mornings. When we do that, we call them unclean unfit for God's love. God has said let, that we should call no one unclean. I believe that as Christians, we should be the greatest agents of reconciliation that this world knows. And I promise you guys, we will not stumble into this. This doesn't just happen naturally. We have to intentionally pursue this. Peter didn't stumble into Cornelius' house. He wasn't walking by and say, oh, I wonder who's in there. It took a very intentional step of faith for him to go in there. And for this to happen, I think we need to become learners of other cultures. 
learners of, of different opinions. We have to be willing to cross the barriers, especially when it makes us uncomfortable. But we can't stop there. And I think this is where we need to be careful. Because God did not just come to break down social barriers. Hey, uh, God, the message of the gospel is not just a social justice initiative. He didn't come just to bring reconciliation between men. And I see a lot of Christians involved with great social justice initiatives. And I think they're fantastic. But not at the expense of the main work of God, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. We can never uh, substitute the, the gospel of peace and the forgiveness of sins for the gospel of social reconciliation. We need to be careful of this. Jesus didn't come primarily to start social initiatives. They are a byproduct of his main work, which is to reconcile sinful men to God. So God breaks down social barriers, yes, but he also breaks down spiritual barriers. In Acts 10, we see that God breaks down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and then breaks down the barrier between heaven and hell. Back to Acts 10, verse 34, he says, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. With him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter calls this the good news of peace. And I think this is one of the greatest epiphanies in human history. When Peter realizes God has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And that every Gentile now has an opportunity to respond to the good news of peace. And here he, he lays out, I think this is, this is great. This is such a clean and simple and short presentation of the gospel. And it's so profound. He lays out all the essential elements. That Jesus was born as a man. He did incredible miracles. He taught amazing things. And <clears throat> I have to think that as Peter is sharing, I imagine he's remembering some of the things that Jesus did. When Jesus was on earth, he didn't see clean and unclean the way they did. There, there's a scene where he goes and he talks to a Samaritan woman, a woman who would have been considered unclean. There are scenes where Jesus goes and he touches, physically touches lepers, which would have made him unclean. He eats dinner with sinners, prostitutes. His disciples sometimes don't wash their hands, which would have made them unclean. My guess is Peter is remembering these things as he's telling this story. Because of Jesus' teaching, because of what he claimed, he was put to death on a cross, nailed to a cross. 
God raised him from the dead. People don't raise from the dead. Jesus did. And then Peter says that Jesus will return and one day we will all stand before the throne. Be judged by him. And that our only hope on that day is the forgiveness of sins that comes from belief in Jesus. The barrier between heaven and hell, the barrier that keeps man from God is our sin. It is our rebellion against God, our rejection of God, our choosing the world rather than choosing him. Jesus removes that barrier by taking it upon himself and dying on the cross. The death that we deserve to die so that the gospel of peace, we can have peace with God. So my question, are you at peace with God? Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? Are you obeying him as Lord? This is the most important question we can answer this side of eternity. Are you at peace with God? And in a minute, we are going to have a time of worship, a time to respond. Don't leave here without answering that question. There'll be members of our, our leadership over here to pray, to answer questions if you have questions. But don't leave without knowing the answer to that question. Are you at peace with God? I'm going to wrap up, but there's, there's two points that I think I, I want to make from Acts 10 in closing. The first is this. God didn't give Cornelius the message. He gave him the messenger. Sounds simple, but I think this is profound. If you picture this scene, here's Cornelius praying, and an angel shows up. But instead of the angel telling him the gospel, instead of the angel telling him about Jesus, the angel says, go get Peter. So God doesn't give Cornelius the message, he gives him the messenger. And I think the implication for us, we have to realize that God's means to get the gospel out is us. It is his people, those who have been reconciled to him, who are now reconcilers in the world. God didn't give him the message, he gave him the messenger. And second, and I think this is really important for us in Davis today, God did not send Cornelius to Peter. He sent Peter to Cornelius. I work with college students, and, and every year I am amazed by how much further they are from a culturally Christian churched society. I, I don't assume anymore that students have been to a church. I used to. I used to assume that everybody had at least been once. I don't assume that anymore. And I think more and more so, people don't want to go to church. And to be honest, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't want to go to church. To sing songs that I don't know the lyrics to, to hear a message from a book I don't believe in, to be with people who are always smiling and happy and I don't know why, I wouldn't want to be a part of that. And, and I think if the message of the gospel is going to get to the ends of the earth, it's not going to be because everybody comes to a church. It's going to be because the church goes to them. We have to know that, and we have to believe that, and we have to live that. God didn't send Cornelius to Peter. He sent Peter to Cornelius. And when we do this, when we go to the world, we are actually living the model that Jesus lived. Think about that. Jesus came and lived as a man in weakness, in poverty. He entered into our world to save us. 
And he calls us to do the same. So again, our, our hope as a church is that we would catch the vision that he has for us. That together, as a church, we could participate in his mission to reach the city, to reach the world. And as we close, I want you to think about maybe your friends, maybe your family that don't know Jesus. God isn't going to tell them the gospel in their alphabet soup. He's not going to spell it out in the clouds. He could, but he won't. He's going to use people. He's going to use you. He's going to use us to cross the social barriers that he has broken down. To share the good news of peace. For the salvation of the world. And how they can get right with God. Let me pray. God, if it weren't for your work in Acts 10, if it weren't for Peter's obedience in bringing the gospel to the Gentile world, we would not be here today. I would not be here. I would not know the good news of peace. I would not be reconciled to you. So I thank you. I thank you, God, that you accomplished this 2,000 years ago. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die and break down the barriers. God, I ask that you would give us strength and courage and humility as a church to cross the social barriers. God, we want to see people from every nation, from every tribe, from every part of town together worshiping before the throne. God, would you use discovery to do that? And Lord, if this morning there is something you need to convict us of, if there's a person that you've brought to mind that we have called unclean, I pray that we would repent. I pray that you would forgive and that you would empower us to love. God, we want to see you turn the world upside down. We want to see you turn Davis upside down. We love you, Lord. Please do this.